0: Welcome to the AcuSprout podcast, where it's my mission to help new practitioners of Chinese medicine navigate from school to career. I'm Stacy. I'm an acupuncturist and herbalist, podcaster, coach, and creator of magical networks. Be sure to check out all four pillars of the podcast, where I cover case studies to sharpen your clinical skills, Mindset Mondays to support your mental health, new practitioner interviews to prove that you are not alone, and all things business from launching your practice to negotiating your pay if you choose to be an employee. This podcast is made possible by our sponsors. So if you would like to support the podcast, be sure to check out the sponsors page on the website to claim your special AccuSprout offers. When I first started my practice, I was actually kind of a disaster when it came to my books. I hired an accountant who actually laundered money from another client. So I went on a quest to find a bookkeeper who really tailors to and loves working with acupuncturists. And I found Sarah at Horizon West Bookkeeping and I'm feeling pretty fortunate. Sarah offers acupuncturists and the Accusprout community a couple different packages so that she can meet you where you are. If you're new to practice, she can come in and do what's called a QuickBooks startup package for you, where you get pretty deep discounts on QuickBooks for about four months. She sets up your chart of accounts, assists with linking your bank accounts, makes sure that all the transactions are imported, and then teaches you how to use it with two hours of one-on-one training. It's a killer deal. She also offers cleanup packages and catch-up packages. Not catch up packages, guys. Catch up packages. And a monthly package, which is what I use. And I find it quite affordable and so, so, so worth it because honestly, I never since the beginning have been able to keep up with my bookkeeping. You can schedule a free 15 minute consultation with Sarah to make sure that you guys are the right fit for each other. And you can do that at horizonwestbookkeeping.com forward slash AccuSprout or look for the link in the show notes. Today's episode is also sponsored by Jane, an all-in-one practice management software with helpful features to power your acupuncture practice. Jane offers flexible scheduling options that match the way you work. You have the option of offering one-on-one online sessions for initial consults, meeting in person, and scheduling staggered appointments to accommodate treating patients across different treatment rooms. Jane, has you covered? Keep the relaxation going with a seamless checkout experience using Jane's PCI-compliant payment solution, Jane Payments. You can collect patient credit cards securely through your intake form or at the time of booking with an online booking payment policy. This can also help reduce no-shows in your practice. It's a win-win. And Jane's unlimited SMS and email reminders can be sent automatically before each appointment as an extra layer of no-show protection. To learn more about how Jane's helpful features can help you power your acupuncture practice, head to jane.app to book a one-on-one demo with a member of their team. Or if you're ready to get started, head on over to acusprout.com forward slash Jane. And remember to use the code ACUSPROUT1MO at the time of sign up to get a one-month grace period applied to your new account.
1: She's like, oh. Okay, I get it. I don't have some irreversible. I mean, maybe who cares if it's irreversible or not? If, if my function is back to normal and my pain is way down, it doesn't matter what the MRI looks like. Maybe it's a little caution that I shouldn't go out there snowboarding and risk falling on my arm and twisting my neck around or something. But, but basically, I can set aside the MRI and go back to living my life. Hey, friends.
0: Hey, friends. Welcome back to the show. In today's episode, we are going to be talking with Anthony VanderMool, who teaches at ACCHS. He teaches in the doctoral program, the DAOM program, and he teaches orthopedic acupuncture, but with a special twist that we'll be talking about Uh no pun intended. <laughs> that we'll be talking about during the episode. Before I start today's episode, I just wanted to invite you to join my newsletter. If you are not signed up for the newsletter, here are some things in December that you missed. I did a, in November. I did an episode titled "Employee or Independent Contractor: What's an Acupuncturist to Do?" Where I covered. All of the legal differences between being defined as an employee or an independent contractor so that when you go out to find a job, you know which one you actually are so that you do not get in trouble later. I got a lot of feedback from that and I answered a ton of questions in the newsletter So the newsletter is three business items, two clinic clues, and one piece of inspiration that I do monthly. And I give links to a lot of really, really good stuff that you guys as new practitioners should just create a file and link all of it so that you do not have to go research a ton of stuff in order to make decisions in your clinic. So another little piece of information that I gave was uh, an online fax, the TIPA compliant. So you wouldn't have to go looking for that. You would just know. And these are not things that are actually sponsored. This is just information that I have come across in my first couple of years and find it super helpful. Also, in this most recent newsletter, I shared a sweet deal for uh, practitioners put on put out by eLotus. And eLotus is... a um, an online course catalog uh, and they continue to hold live webinars and um, do all sorts of teaching. But basically as a new practitioner, you can um, sign up with them for the year and then you Evergreen, they partnered with Evergreen Herbs. Evergreen gives you that same amount that you pay for the entire year in herbs. So you can turn around and order herbs for your patients. It's a great way to start your own herbal medicinary as a new practitioner as well. But I use the classes as a way as a patient presents in front of me and I have questions and I need help. I just go search the classes and then take a class and learn all about the case right in front of me. found it super helpful. Anyway, that was in the newsletter and uh, they offered uh, like $300 off of that. And if you're not signed up for the newsletter, then you missed it. So. Hopefully that, that just uh, gave you a little FOMO. So you can sign up for the newsletter either on the website, com, on my Instagram feed, in the bio, or uh, if your podcast host allows it, it will be in your show notes. Do it. It's totally worth it. Okay. So now I'm bringing on Anthony Vondermil. Anthony is... Uh, one of the instructors at ACCHS, the Academy of Chinese Culture and Health Sciences, located in Oakland, California. They have an excellent, excellent DAOM program, and Anthony teaches acupuncture, orthopedics, and sports medicine. Anthony is also the founder of AOM Professional, where he has a certification in acupuncture, orthopedics program, Um, but today we're just going to give you a little touch of what it's like to study with Anthony in the DAOM program as he does a case presentation for us Um, and it is damned if it's not good so if you appreciate these please let me know all right without further ado here is our show today Hi, Anthony. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for coming on today. I'm I'm really looking forward to chatting about this case study that you're bringing in.
1: Well, thank you very much for having me, Stacey.
0: So um, tell us how to pronounce your last name.
1: Ah, (laughs) That's a great question. Um, uh, I don't actually know how to pronounce it properly, so I'm never offended if anyone mispronounces it. It's a Swiss name, and I asked my cousins at a family reunion many years ago, and they said, depends which town in Switzerland you come from. And so I just say von and it's, you know, just kind of the way you'd read it out in English. Yeah, something like that. Von
0: What did they say? What did they say?
1: Oh, gosh, they get started giving me, it, they started giving me different von der and, von, you know, I just, I can't even remember. It depended, you know, are you in this French-speaking region, the German-speaking region, the Italian-speaking region, you know, which village, you know, et cetera.
0: Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, well, thanks for being here. I, I before we start, I just sort of we we are not particularly familiar with each other, so I'm super excited to learn a little bit more about you. Yeah. So why don't you tell me how, how did you get into this crazy medicine and how long sure. have you been practicing?
1: Sure, sure, okay, very good. Yeah, let's see. I've been practicing um, almost exactly 20 years. Uh, and I got into it um, through actually a soccer injury that I had when I was 24 was really the beginning of the chain of events. I had a uh, kick, uh, meant to kick the ball, kicked the ground instead, tore the adductor muscles in my right leg badly enough that I just instantly fell over and had to crawl to the sidelines. And um, conventional physical therapy didn't really do that much for me. And you know, I limped around and you know, fairly significant chronic pain. It turned into sciatica and back problems and stuff from all the gait and postural Dysfunctions and uh, and then I was living in San Francisco at the time, and Tai Chi really made a big difference for me. And I started taking Tai Chi classes and like, huh, wow. And then in San Francisco, acupuncture clinics, herb shops, Chinatown—it's all very accessible. It's all over the place, and so I started experimenting with getting acupuncture and taking Chinese herbs as a you know form of healthcare, and found that not only did it work for me, but I was fascinated by it. It seemed so different than what I. Grown up with and, and, um, had all kinds of resonances and dimensions that were very intriguing to me. So, so, um, that's, that's,
0: so that's how you started.
1: Yep. Yeah.
0: Were you already in college or was this the start of your career? A lot of people I've, I noticed have like, this is their second career, even if they're in their twenties. So where were you at at that point?
1: Um, yeah, so I, this was kind of a first career, but I had already been out of undergrad, uh, I graduated from the University of California, Santa Cruz in 1987. I was working as a community organizer uh, in San Francisco's diverse urban neighborhoods, uh, but it was always kind of patching together, you know, a number of part-time, short-term jobs. With and so when I, and then I was limping around with a soccer injury, and so when I decided, okay, I need something a little more sustainable, um, that I can really, and also I wanted to develop some sort of technical hands-on skills to help people in a different way than I had been as a community organizer, focusing more on individuals and their needs. I had, had good experience with Tai Chi and with acupuncture and Chinese herbs and was interested in it. That just felt like the right direction to go. Um, so I think I was, gosh, I was 34 when I started, be 33 when I started taking classes as a massage therapist and by the time I was 34 35 I had started a degree program at the Pacific College of Oriental Medicine in San Diego and then finished it up at the Five Branches University in Santa Cruz and graduated in 2002. And back then um, this was in the early 90s uh, sorry mid you know mid to late 90s early 2000s it was a second career for almost everyone. There were hardly any youngsters fresh out of high school or you know or you know just having completed an undergrad degree in the master's programs and now now that's quite common you know in fact i'd say the majority of students that i taught at the master's level it's really a first first career so that's the evolution of the profession in this country
0: so today we're going to talk about an orthopedic case and that yeah. is um, your forte mm. so just a little background too so I'm probably what what I'm like five years out now mm. and I've always uh, my background's orthopedics and oh, okay. um, I was I was a massage therapist for eighteen years and worked with athletes so uh-huh. this is this is a a part of my passion as well, or just sort of my path. Like, I feel Mm -hmm. like I can't even get away from it, honestly, if I want to. (laughs) So uh, when I was in school, I was also fascinated. And so at OCOM, uh, we could, there were like, in the library, there were like all of these um, CDs of classes of like, I watched Whitfield Reeves' very first classes that he taught, like, 25 years ago, Uh Uh and they were on, like, uh, DVDs and stuff, and it was was awesome because, well, as a side note, he was a very nervous public speaker when he very first started. Oh, is that right? And so these... Oh, he just stumbled, and in the very beginning videos, it was really hard for him. And so, I have to say that's a little bit inspiring, because Uh I also feel that way sometimes. But anyway so, so there are there are some really great names out there for orthopedic and um, neurological type of acupuncture, mm-hmm. like Pony Chang yes. and um Matt callison, Whitfield Reeves. How would you say that your style compares to those other styles? Sure. And feel free to comment on those too, because okay. we have a lot of new listeners, and so those sure. names might be a little bit new to them as well.
1: That's a great question. Yeah. And everyone that you mentioned, I have great respect for have taken classes from and uh, highly encourage everyone to take their classes. Um, they, they've got a lot to share and a lot to offer. I would say what, um, there's a couple things that that I would say are are distinctive of what I have to teach and offer. Um, maybe three things that I'll uh, try to run through at just a technique level. Um, I, I would say what I'm best known for and what has become a mainstay of my practice is a, a technique that I learned from uh, an acupuncturist, Alon Marcus, who's now retired, who was just a walking encyclopedia of orthopedic knowledge and has published a couple books that are references in the field, Um and the technique he didn't really have a name for it. There isn't a good name for it. If any of you anyone who's listening is familiar with prolotherapy or PRP injections or hyaluronic acid injections, it's kind of a cousin of that. It's basically the dry needle version of it. The idea is that by needling into ligaments, joint capsules, ligamento periosteal attachments or tendinoperiosteal attachments, menisci, all this kind of dense but inert structural connective tissue. That um, you can um, uh, provoke a, an immediate uh, effect of restabilizing a hypermobile joint, and then a long-term effect that builds over about six months or so of tissue bulking up hypertrophy and hypertrophying collagen fibers, getting laid down that strengthen and stabilize a joint. Um, and what's and it's it is a very potent technique. It works very well. It's not too. Um, painful or uncomfortable most of the time it's more comfortable than the dry needling of myofascial trigger points for most patients and it's very rapid it takes literally just one needle a couple of minutes of probing around at most sometimes 30 seconds will do it pull the needle out and you can retest that joint and it's stabilized Um, and if you don't get it the first time you just go back in you know four or five minutes maybe at most is what I'll ever spend in any given visit. So that allows you to treat multiple joints in a given session and the effects last, um, astonishingly well. And they can, you know, months, years, uh, indefinitely, uh, not always, no, no p- technique works a hundred percent of the time for everyone and everything. But, um, Uh, But even on patients where, you know, I was like, oh, my gosh, this is a 50-year-old problem. This is a woman in her 70s whose ankle was badly sprained in her 20s. Am I going to be able to do anything with this? Astonishingly to me, too. Yeah. um, uh, Chronic old problems. Um, Now, here's the thing. Is that hypermobile joint? Well, who cares, right? I mean, if you're not an orthopedic specialist, that may just seem like an obscure, you know, concept. Um, But... Chinese medicine acknowledges the joints are the nine pearls of the body, um, and they are convergences of all the, the the what we often call meridians, although myself I prefer the term you know myofascial tracts rather than sinew meridians. I think that's a better description of what we're actually working with. But they're convergences, and they play a critical role in the function and the stability of the human body. If you have a, if you have a knee joint that's unstable or an ankle joint that's floppy, you know, you can't overcome it through willpower. It's different that way than, than muscular problems or, or neurologic problems where you can play through the pain. But if you've got a loose, unstable ankle and you put weight on it, you're just going to fall over if it's grossly unstable. Uh, it doesn't matter what your pain tolerance is and what your goals and ambition are. And a loose joint causes all pro- kinds of problems up and down the, the biomechanical pathway or the meridian, however what terminology you want to use. Um, because all the muscles above and below it have to compensate for that instability by overworking, they develop pain, inflammation, and trigger points. Um, and and how I, I learned the technique from Milan, and over time I began to realize this is this is the best thing I can do for most patients most of the time. Because if there's an unstable joint, and I just try to chase trigger points, and you know do gua sha and cupping and electroacupuncture and distal acupuncture, I can get some good pain relief but the problem will tend to come back. It won't necessarily come back quite as bad, and with a lot of time, repetition will slowly get better. But if I restabilize that joint, everything else works so much better. I may not even have to chase down a bunch of trigger points or do some gua sha or cupping or motor points or electroacupuncture because once that joint is stable, the muscles fire properly and, and things function well. But here's the thing, it's off the radar screen for most people, if all they think about is pain, because an unstable joint is not necessarily a pain generator in and of itself. So I'm going to pause there and let that sink in.
0: Oh, I'm excited. <laughs>
1: okay. <laughs> Good, because sometimes when I start talking about this, an acupuncturist will go, what, you mean you're not treating pain? I'm like, I'm treating something much deeper and more profound than pain. I'm treating structure and I'm treating function. Um, And I'm treating the patient's relationship to pain. Um, And so any of us can, I mean, acupuncture is a great tool. I mean, even a beginner, even a first semester student in a school clinic can stick a bunch of needles in somebody and invoke a bunch of top-down, what we call in neurological terms, top-down endogenous control systems where you cause the release of endogenous opioids and, you know, normalized blood flow, blah, blah, blah. It doesn't matter where I put a needle in the body. We can achieve, you know, short-term pain relief very powerfully, very easily, very rapidly with acupuncturists. An untrained six-year-old could do it with ear needles, you know. Um, I mean, there's obvious safety issues there. But, it, but, but to change structure and function, you have to think about structure and function. and You have to, to address structure and function. And this is the most powerful technique I've found to do that. But that means when I'm, I, I'm hearing a patient talk about their pain, I'm th- also thinking what joint pathologies might be at the bottom of this. An old sprained ankle, I see this over and over again, an old sprained ankle 30 years later of little gait dysfunction, the opposite hip is starting to wear out and, and become painful and they're getting sciatica because their piriformis muscle is tight and overworking to compensate for this unstable opposite side leg and so on you know that's just one of many examples and then if i restabilize that that joint and restore its normal function um, then everything else starts to work better again and those of you have any familiarity with osteopathic approaches to looking at or tensegrity or thomas meyer's anatomy trains thinking about you know these are sort of western examples but chinese medicine says it right there too you look up and down the pathway and, and across the body to the other side and from front to back and so on. Uh, and you start seeing these relationships. So that's the technique um, that I think that I teach that not that many other acupuncturists do. I know Matt does some of that. Don't know about wit. Or, or, and I don't think Pony Chang actually interviewed me about this technique um, because for him it was interesting because it does not involve the use of, of conventional acupuncture points, of our traditional acupuncture points. And Pony, I have to say, is doing an enormous service to our profession and our medicine by showing us how the classical acupuncture points actually do correlate very clearly if you go back to the ancient classics and translate them very carefully. It's quite obvious he can demonstrate over and over again that they correlate to neurologic structures um, but when we start talking about hypermobile joints it's like oh these are not conventional acupuncture points okay. now they do now, so the question comes in well are you practicing something modern i could say well yes i am i learned it through a modern pathway but when you look at classical descriptions of needling techniques for the the jing jing the myofascial tracts or sinew meridians uh, or other descriptions of classical needling techniques, there are a number of them that that I think overlap or correlate with with this technique of needling into ligaments and other connected tissues. And bone pecking is one term that that I, when I describe it to acupuncturists of classical training, they say, "Oh, you're doing bone pecking." Well, sort of. It's not exactly the same as bone pecking. There's some overlap, um, and. That's probably too an uh, arcane discussion to get into in today's interview. But there are ancient versions of this. So uh, I'm not representing that I've made something up or that I'm doing something completely different than classical Chinese medicine. But I'm explaining what I do and I'm thinking about what I do in sort of modern orthopedic terms that correlate with ancient understandings of human fu- structure and function.
0: Hmm. <laughs> So when you needle, say, a tendon or connective tissue, Mm -hmm. is there a neurological response? How can you explain how this uh, uh, resets an unstable or unstable joint?
1: Sure. That is a great question. And quite frankly, nobody really knows for sure. It's a mystery Mm -hmm. even in Western medicine that claims to have all the answers. Um, There is a poorly understood and little referenced uh, ligamental muscular reflex. doesn't show up in most textbooks, but there is some documentation of it, which explains why muscles would respond to needling into a joint. You needle into connective tissue. It's basically, oh shoot, what's the name of the it'll come to me, there's a Hilton's law, you know, that says that deeper structures are innervated by the same neural uh, atomes and dermatomes, neural structures as more superficial structures that can kind of explain why if you needle deeply into a joint, you're going to get some response to superficial tissue. But that does not explain why there, there was this immediate and very clearly objectively verifiable tightening up of a joint. The best explanation I've heard actually is from a chiropractor that I, uh, that I took uh, cadaver classes from and, and we co-taught some classes together and I asked him about this technique and it's like, what's going on with this? He's like, well, w- we used to think of ligaments as totally inert and we now realize that they actually are infiltrated by little, little proprioceptive nerve fibers and, and they certainly have nociceptive nerve fibers and probably something is going on with joint proprioception. It's a little bit uh, a, a ligamento ligament to this reflex where you poke it kind of like a sea anemone and it contracts reflexively to the, the irritation of the needle. That's the immediate short-term response. The longer-term response of the tissue bulking up and hypertrophying through, is better understood through collagen fiber deposition and release of tissue growth factors. And um, um, yeah, but we don't really know why there's that, you know, and, and by immediate, I mean, you take the needle out, you retest it right away, and it's, it's changed. And there's not that many things we do with acupuncture where we can do that. And, Except for those of you that work with pulse systems where you've got your fingers on the patient's pulse and you're manipulating a needle and you feel the pulse change. So this is kind of the orthopedic version of that. You, you have to take the needle out and you recheck the joint and then, oh, okay, either I got it and it's stable or I didn't quite get it and I need to go back in there with one or two more needles and probe around a little more. But it's subjectively verifiable, very reproducible right away. And then six months later, you check it again. It's like, oh, it's still stable. In fact, maybe it's more stable
0: probably more stable because once you get your gait back into the way that it's supposed to be, quote, so to speak, then the neuro pathways are recharged for that movement pattern of yes. where it should have been and where exactly. you're hitting reset. So right. now you have more neuropathways that are supposed to be firing in that way. Yes. Yep. So, reeducation of the of the proper neuropathways. Yeah, exactly. Uh, for gait gait exactly. movement. I also wanted to tag into this cuz this is something that is interesting. I learned as a massage therapist and working with athletes often that one of the ways and I'm I'm forgetting the name of the proprioceptors in the at the end of in the tendons at the and ligaments ah oh.
1: Golgi tendon? Golgi tendon, no. Or the muscle spindle
0: cells? Muscles, yes, muscle spindle cells. So one of the uh, things that I used to do, if an athlete was cramping severely, say they're in sports performance and they're Mm -hmm. suddenly, they're just like on their knees cramping and they're like, help. You can just do direct compression on the muscle belly, right? But if that doesn't work, then you can activate the, it is the Golgi tendon. You can activate Mm -hmm. the Golgi tendon and turn it on or turn it off, depending Mm -hmm. on the way that you stroke the attachments. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah.
0: And I thought that was just fascinating. So you could just, you just go, sorry, I'm on camera with Anthony. (laughs) Instead of like squishing, like moving your hands in the direction of the muscle belly, you stroke away from the muscle belly and that will settle a cramp. It's fascinating. Yeah. So I'm, 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 I'm curious if this is just similar, but anyway. There's,
1: yeah, they're probably when we when we needle into tendons, very likely part of the effect is through is mediated through gold yeah, GTOs, Golgi tendon, G tendon organs. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And just like needling into muscles, some of the effects are mediated through the muscle spindle cells as well. Mm-hmm. But here's what's a little, again, this is, I just want to highlight this because uh, I am probably most acupuncturists, you know, it's very common to come into acupuncture uh, as a Westerner with backgrounds in massage therapy and yoga uh, uh, or athletics where stretching is kind of king, you know, it's all about loosening and stretching and lengthening tissues. And so this was a real paradigm shift for me to think, oh, things can actually get overstretched and be loose and floppy, and, and really, if we think about Chinese medicine and the yin-yang symbol, we go, well, of course, that's the Western approach is, you know, everything's yang. You want to, you know, enlarge, stretch, stretch, lengthen, and you're always thinking about dynamic function, and Chinese medicine and the yin-yang symbol tell us, well, the yin, the structure, is also very important, and so, uh, for example, one of my most recent patients, this is not the case that we're going to talk about, but uh, I want to say it's almost comical for me because, um, because you know, how we all attract patients that fit what we have to offer. So I get this call from a patient who's a, a professional yoga instructor, and she's like, I read something on your website about stabilizing joints, and that really got my attention because I realized I have overstretched all my joints from years of practicing yoga. And she was in chronic pain, and uh, she was somewhat slender and slightly built, somebody who really didn't need to be stretching she was already loose and floppy and you know had way more range of motion everywhere but it was actually a problem for her and and she just and so we had a visit and she was like well can you treat this joint and can you do my neck and can you do my knee and can you do my ankle and pretty soon we were just like going up and down all these joints all over the body you know restabilizing them and it was it for her it was just like a a huge you know light bulb going off it's like wow there's a value to strengthening and stabilization. It's not all about mobilization and stretching. There's a yin yang balance here. So, if all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And if you're just stretching muscles and lengthening muscles and gua sha and cupping and stretching and reducing trigger points, you're doing the muscles a whole lot of good, but you're leaving the structure, the underlying structure of the ligaments and, and uh, joints untouched. So, that's where I think. My approach and what I have to teach complements, it doesn't replace, but it complements a missing, I used to joke about it being the missing link, because that's what ligaments are, they link bone to bone. It's the missing link in a lot of the education and the training that goes on out there. And I think truly this is orthopedic acupuncture, because orthopedic really means bone and joint. It's not myofascial acupuncture. You know, Motor points are neurologic acupuncture, trigger points are myofascial, but this is orthopedic.
0: Say that again,
1: sure. because
0: in my mind, uh, musculoskeletal, say it again,
1: yes, because sure, define absolutely. it again for me. Yes, I will, because and that's a great question because our profession tends to use terms like orthopedics and sports medicine uh, very loosely and kind of interchangeably, and not the way physicians would use them, where they really understand what they mean. Um, orthopedics is bone and joint, right muscles is myology is myalgia is myofascial right Um, muscles now they're obviously these tissues are all related they talk to each other i'm not saying that they're completely separate and you can just treat one and ignore everything else but i'm saying what i do complements. you know pony chang is a fantastic teacher of of neurology clayton shu is a fantastic teacher of acupuncture neurology there's some great teachers out there that teach how to you know teach how to treat neurologic conditions and neuropathic pain and so on. Matt Callison and Whitfield Reeves are great with sports acupuncture, you know, mostly focusing on on muscles and myofascial trigger points. And Matt has, you know, added uh, his motor point acupuncture and done us all a big service by introducing the concepts of motor point needling. But this is not either one of those. It's something different is focusing on bone and joint, not muscles, not motor points, not neurologic structures. And they just help each other out is how I see it. And you leave any one of them, Unaddressed, you're, you're trying to build a table with two legs instead of three or four that needs to be stable. So.
0: And so would you say that sports medicine is the umbrella for all of those together? Well, I know now we're, we're arguing semantics, sure, right? Semantics. But...
1: Well, actually, no, no, this is actually a great question because it's, it's a perfect segue. And I said there's kind of three things that I think make what I have to offer a little bit distinctive uh, in terms of teaching. The second is that um, sports medicine, properly understood, really is about helping athletes accomplish athletic goals and stay in the game. And usually we're really talking about elite athletes, people who are already, they're not like you. Well, I don't know about you. They might be like you, Stacy, but they're not like me. I'm a klutz, You know, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I, am, I cannot claim to be athletically endowed with anything. And athlete, elite athletes are genetically not like most people. They really are different. Um, and that's, I'm not making that up. They're wired differently than we are, than most of us are my experience really where I cut my teeth, uh, out of acupuncture school was, uh, Uh, chronic pain management, physiatry, physical medicine and rehabilitation specialists were the doctors who referred to me. I worked in the office of a physiatrist. I also worked in a pain medicine clinic. Pain medicine is the bottom of the barrel. They're the, the doctors that get the patients that nobody, everyone else has given, even the physiatrists and the neurologists and the spine surgeons and the orthopedists, everyone's given up on them. It's like, you know, there's nothing left we can do for this patient except to shovel opioids at them. Um, but I worked in a pain medicine clinic of a physician who was, who was very acupuncture friendly. And so I worked with, you know, deep psychosocial behavioral dysfunction that is not your elite athlete, right? These are opioid addicted, chronically depressed in the work comp system for the last 30 years, you know, on multiple medications. And, and, you know, they were really tough. Some of them were, you know, I mean, sometimes suicidal. I mean, really, really difficult patients to work with. So I learned a lot from that about, about pain psychology and pain behaviors and, 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 and pain science and what pain is and what pain isn't. So I bring all that into my teaching as well. I don't claim to be an expert in treating anxiety and depression and, and, and uh, you know, psychiatric disorders generally, but where they overlap with pain and disability, um, I learned a lot from basically the school of hard knocks, You know what not to say as well as what to say, how, how to and how not to work with patients who are... Very dysfunctional, very depressed, highly needle sensitive, needle phobic. Uh, had all kinds of bad experiences with medicine, and um, and yet we can still help them out if we approach them with care and with uh, respect and with understanding. So, that's a subtle, intangible thing that I that. I bring into not just a technical skill, how to communicate with patients, how to identify pain psychology and pain behaviors and work with it, even if you're not, I don't mean counseling, and right? I should be clear about that. It's not in our scope of practice in most states to to serve as a clinical psychotherapist, and there's a lot of amateur psychotherapy going on in our profession that, that is, I find very worrisome, um, but still there are things we can we can model, we can demonstrate subverbally in how we understand our patients, how we approach them, what we do with herbs and acupuncture needles that are responsive to their psychosocial needs and their pain. Um, that is um, different than an elite athlete's goal to, you know, get back in the triathlon and, and win it this time around.
0: So very fair. Yeah. Very fair. And we could. I, I um, am also duly fascinated with um, the polyvagal theory and the yeah. new the all of this this emerging, extremely validating mm. research and information on how um, adverse childhood events or traumas can trigger trigger physical pain, yes. and then how to help a patient through that because exactly what you're just saying that pain isn't always just um, because your joint is loose or because you have muscle pain because you have a sports injury. It's, it's very often related to a history of trauma and, and even epigenetically epigen- yeah. induced trauma, right? Genetically, so, you
1: know, multi-generational, you know, cultural, yes. environmental, et cetera. Yes. And, or, or even just simply without even without a frank trauma modeling dysfunctional behavior patterns that are that are you know that are part of the family dynamic or part of the cultural dynamic and stuff that 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 keep the patient from from uh, responding to their pain in, a, in an adaptive functional way um, exactly yeah so exactly. and so yeah so so neural sensitization you mentioned polyvagal theory and the one that that, that sort of addresses as I understand it that Dysregulation of the autonomic nervous system, which is, you know, the three big neurologic factors in in pain maintenance, are are uh, the peripheral nervous system, which is often where the injury starts. You know, a sprained ankle, carpal tunnel syndrome, something like that. The autonomic nervous system and the central nervous system, the brain and spinal cord, and how they process pain signaling. So uh, that all of that information I weave into my teaching, and and it's very. I think it's also very helpful for us as acupuncturists. The more we understand of that. The less we take personally both our successes and our failures, uh, and we realize that that patient who is just too needle sensitive and doesn't tolerate stuff that we do well—it's not a reflection on us that they're—they're they're just their nervous system is really wired to run pain loops no matter what anyone does, um, and and yet there still there are ways we can work with them, but we don't need to take it personally when uh, things misfire.
0: Boy, that's the takeaway. Probably that's probably the most important. Thing to take away from this whole, all of this information mm-hmm. that we're providing, but that statement right there is for a new practitioner because we're sensitive and yes. insecure. And yes. when people don't come back, we take it mm-hmm. personally. And when people say that nothing's changing, we may mm-hmm. not feel like we're adequately trained. But if you can enter clinic and not take anything personally, yes. then you are going to move forward more quickly through the progression of going from being a beginner to learning how to treat patients more easily with less mental emotional drain on your own system right exactly
1: yeah and and less when to hold them and when to fold them and you have you know a lot of what i try to pass on to my students is tools that have worked for me that are not not you know individual psychotherapy but just um What's the term, Um, positive activity interventions, that things that people, that we can do with our patients, that they can do for themselves, that we can prescribe, that we can practice, that we can demonstrate, that work for most people most of the time, regardless of how deep or dysfunctional their psychosocial pathology is without delving into their, you know, we don't ha- I mean, if they open up and they want to talk about their childhood trauma, that's fine. I'm there. I'm there as a supportive listener and a non-judgmental sounding board and so on. Um, but I don't need to go there. I don't need to, you know, push and delve and because that can be, again, first of all, we're not trained and it's outside our scope and it can actually be more traumatizing and less helpful than we think to, to, to push the patient to reveal their childhood traumas and stuff.
0: No, no. And this is what I love. I am, uh, a human who has like if you look at the adverse childhood events there's like 10 and i literally have 10 mm. and so so i also as a as a practitioner i love the fact that i can have people on the table and they don't have to talk about it Because Mm -hmm. that was, because I am what I'm 50 now. So a lot of my healing was didactic therapy of reliving and all of the therapists wanted to talk about all of those things over and over again. Mm -hmm. And it, it never, it Mm -hmm. never ended well, it Mm -hmm. never ended well. And it only got better when I stopped running that the grooves in that record over and over again so i having being a five-year in practitioner i i see so much value in being able to treat people without having to run the grooves in the record of their of their adverse events it's amazing
1: i'm i'm glad to hear you say that and and it also doesn't surprise me and you know part of how i sort of approach this in some sense and this also comes out of my own you know difficult i had a uh Uh, a stepmother who was uh, a a, uh, marriage and family therapist. And after growing up in that family dynamic, the last thing I wanted to have anything to do with was marriage and family therapy. And I thought all therapy was bunk for a really long time, et cetera, et cetera. And I sought out a medicine where like exactly what you're saying. I could be helpful and effective without having to have an extended conversation about all this stuff. And, and, um, um, and I began to realize that actually, you know, many, Take many types of trauma, not all, but many involve some kind of boundary violation. And the last thing I want to do as a practitioner is violate anyone's boundaries. I want to create a safe space. And if somebody wants to bring something up, I I certainly will be a receptive and supportive listener. But I don't need to probe in order to be effective uh, to treat, you know. Um, So that's so. From the bone and joint, from the very structural to the very I subtle know. and the tangible i I try to to span the whole the whole um, uh, uh, spectrum, and then i 'll just add, and we don 't need to spend much time in this, um, but um, sometimes I bring it up because um, you know, if you take a class from me, you will see me pull out sometimes a 125 millimeter 24 gauge needle and sink it into somebody's uh, psoas muscle uh, in their back or into their gluteals or take a 24 gauge needle and get into the knee joints and hit the ACL. And people are, you know, sometimes acupuncturists are like, I can see them. They're sweating. Their eyes are bugging out. They're like about to pass out. They're like, oh my God, I would never do that to my patient. Oh, that looks terrifying. You know, it's like, so let me just tell you that I, a little sideline thing that I do is I serve as an expert witness in malpractice cases, um, and I've served on a, oh, some twenty-five plus cases now of, uh, that have either gone to the court, you know, uh, you know, the court system, or and or to acupuncture regulatory boards where somebody a consumer has filed a complaint. Um, and my role is to to you know look at the evidence objectively and weigh in as to whether or not the acupuncturist followed a standard of care or not. Did they render substandard care or did they follow standard care? So um, this, through this, I have learned a lot about safety and about what not to do and how acupuncturists get into trouble, and that also informs all of my teachings. So, so everything that I do, I have a good reason for saying this is safe. In fact, it's probably safer than some stuff that is routinely taught in practice in school clinics. About one-third of pneumothorax injuries come out of gallbladder 21, being needled perpendicularly. So if you needle a gallbladder 21 in a perpendicular direction, stop right now and don't ever do it again. There is no need for it, and you're you're risking potentially. I've served on two cases that involve deaths. This is not oh, a trivial wow. injury. Patients that have been hospitalized and had lung infections that and had to have lungs surgically removed because of pneumothorax injuries. So do not ever needle gallbladder 21 perpendicularly unless you're using maybe a no, I don't even use a 15-millimeter needle. Yeah. There's no reason to no. do it. It doesn't serve any purpose. Oh, but I have to yeah. draw the patient's energy down. Use liver three. Use kidney one.
0: So do you ever needle gallbladder 21? As I do. I just yourself?
1: don't. I, I can take a 60-millimeter needle and needle it transversely under the skin and reduce all kinds of trigger points and treat neck pain and dysfunction uh, and, uh, and, and do it with complete safety.
0: So when you say don't needle perpendicularly in school, we're taught to pull the, the muscle, the trapezius muscle up, and then, okay.
1: Right. If you, but so you if mean you were, from top down, right, from, dorsal, right, right, from, from right. dorsal
0: to ventral. Like, no, yes, do, yes. do not right. needle ever, 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 dorsal don't, to ventral. Don't
1: just do this. Needle
0: from anterior to posterior.
1: Anterior to posterior, medial to lateral. The safest direction is, is, is medial to lateral. If you look at the architecture of the ribs, you'll see why that's the safest direction. But anterior, posterior, posterior, anterior, lateral to medial, all of those are, you know, relatively safe. But you do have to know where you are in the upper trapezius as well. Um, You know, basically three finger widths above the collarbone is where the dome of the lung stops, uh, three of the patient's finger widths above the collarbone. So, part of what I, I really emphasize in my teaching over and over again. Um I'm glad to hear that you were taught to pull the upper trapezius up. I think that's an evolution in our profession actually, because nobody did that when I was in acupuncture school twenty mm. years ago. Senior practitioners with forty years clinical experience were still needing gallbladder twenty one in a perpendicular direction and just being oh. lucky when they didn't cause pneumothoraxes. Um yeah. but um but um let's see what was my point here that uh that that the way the medicine has been imported to the west is to think in two dimensions you know lines and dots on a grid uh, and we're treating three-dimensional human bodies um, and so i don't like the term point i think it's a mistranslation of she i don't like the term meridian i think it's a mistranslation of the term jing luo that's a longer conversation we can get into but but i i use the term neurovascular or, or myofascial distributions or tracts instead of meridian and i and I think the, the literal translation of Shue as cave or hole or access zone is a much better understanding of what those dots are than, uh, than point. Um, because we need to think in three dimensions, where is the needle tip going to wind up? The angle, the depth, and the direction matter enormously, um, not just the entry uh, location on the surface, but it's that two-dimensional thinking that leads to pneumothorax injuries.
0: Another which is choice. once again uh, um, a a plug for knowing your anatomy, knowing which your anatomy. a lot of acupuncturists are really weak We're in weak anatomy. anatomy. Yes, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I took an advanced orthopedics course f- in school from Andrew Schlabach, and it, this was at OCOM. and uh, that was that was the top thing that he was always saying because we did some we did very long needling long needles into joint spaces and and it was always take a deep breath and think and visualize what is underneath that needle as you insert it and be methodical and always know where you're going and what structures are directly beneath what you're doing and if you don't then don't put the needle there (laughs) if you (laughs) don't know don't put the needle there you know so yes yeah it was great training so good all right well let's Let's get into this uh, case study that yes. you are going to share with us. And um, I'm excited to to work our way through sure. it. Sure. Okay.
1: The case study that I wanted to talk briefly about is a, a patient that I saw um, uh, a couple years ago. She was a 59-year-old woman. Uh, she was a librarian. Her chief complaint when she came in to me was... Um, was chronic, moderately severe, and somewhat disabling um, bilateral neck pain and right shoulder pain. Um, And the neck pain had begun about 22 years earlier when she'd fallen off a a physio ball in a gym backwards onto her head, neck, and upper back. Um, And then I didn't get a clear answer from her about when the right shoulder became a problem, but about two years before I started seeing her, uh, she'd had a very severe flare in her um, right neck and uh, in her in her bilateral neck and her right shoulder symptoms that she attributed to uh, a period of sort of acute psychosocial stress. Her father was was dying. Uh, she was in grad school uh, while working and, you know, a lot of workplace and computer stress. And, you know, she said it has improved somewhat since, since the worst of it uh, a couple years earlier, but it was still... It was bad enough that literally the week that she came in to see me, she had quit uh, her job as a librarian. She'd been on disability for the last, you know... Uh, uh, year year and a half and um and finally she was like she was throwing in the towel and was trying to start a second career doing something that for her she thought was less stressful as a you know sort of multimedia artist um but on the pain scale which i don't actually use that much but patients will volunteer the information she said it was sort of usually about a six to seven out of ten uh with ten being the worst and sometimes it would flare higher than that so She had consulted with an orthopedic surgeon uh, fairly recently. The orthopedic surgeon had recommended total shoulder replacement. And that is a rare recommendation. Um, In 20 years of clinical practice, I've seen, I think, one total shoulder replacement and heard a couple of times of a physician recommending total shoulder replacement. They're not like total knee and total hip, right? They're relatively newer. They're much trickier. The shoulder is the least stable, most mobile joint in the body. Um, So that certainly caught my attention. Wow, somebody recommended a TSR, a total shoulder replacement for you. Um, Now, on what basis? Well, she had the worst MRI I've ever seen of a shoulder by a long shot, and I'll I'll read some of the details to you shortly. And she also had a, a worrisome cervical spine MRI. I hear that. I look at the MRI reports, and I'm like, and, you know I've been doing this for 20 years, but this is going to be a tough one. This is going to be really difficult. So even if that was all, that would be difficult. But to complicate the picture, she had chronic illnesses. None of them were like life-threatening, but they were enough. They were kind of the profile of your chronic pain patient. Major depression uh, and ADD. She'd been suicidal in high school. She still had suicidal ideation, but she was stable. But, you know, it's there in the background. You know, major depression. Uh, she sure... Uh, was suffering from uh, myalgic encephalitis and chronic fatigue syndrome. Uh, She was at uh, Stanford University getting treated for that, University Hospital. Uh, That had been going on for a couple years. You know, we had the conversation, is this long COVID? It's like, no, they've really worked me up and down. There's no evidence it's long COVID. It's, you know, ME, CFS, mild to moderate sleep apnea. She has atrial flutter, osteopenia. You know, it's 59, but she already has osteopenia. She'd gone into menopause in her early 40s she'd had a uh, she had a congenital kidney defect where her right kidney was only functioning at 10 percent hypothyroid Uh, so those were the standout and then a bunch of other you know constipation and frequent nocturia and just like a a whole lot of internal medicine patterns as well so i'm like this is going to be a really tough one i you know fingers crossed i get anywhere with this okay she was on multiple medications specifically for pain uh she was on Celebrex, which is rarely used anymore because it's so risky. Um, uh, she had had some acupuncture and she said it calmed her system, but she didn't really notice any other response um to it. You know, I don't they didn't explore what that meant, calm her system, but am I going too fast or,
0: no, too this is this is good. I I have questions, but I don't want to slow you down at this point. So Um, And I don't really feel like we need to clarify anything else at this point. So I I think we're good. So go ahead and keep going. Okay.
1: All right. Very good. I'll keep going. So because of her chronic fatigue, she was not able to exercise much. She had previously been a fairly avid cyclist and swimmer and yoga practitioner. um, But her, her ME CFS clinic was saying, you know, short course of yoga, no more than 10 minutes at a time. And anything beyond that, she would find very predictably any sort of physical or emotional stress or exertion would really flare things up for her.
0: Because so, because that particular that particular illness has a tendency to if you increase activity then you actually run the risk of increasing your s- symptom flares correct exactly
1: exactly and that's yes. you know, she had found that on her own and that had been reinforced by the physician team that she was working with yeah um, so so I'm like wow there's not a whole lot for me to work with here you know she can't exercise much you know normally I would give patients some therapeutic exercises she had done some physical therapy and. You know, gotten some mild benefit from that. Chiropractic made things worse, so she quit it. And somebody recommended that she try me for acupuncture, even though her first experience with acupuncture wasn't really didn't really do much for her pain or her disability. So that's the that's the history in the background. So I go into this kind of like, oh boy, this is going to be you know. So the, yeah, the...
0: so so tell me a little bit about your thought process here when you when you see all of this. Um. And you are going to do, quote, orthopedic acupuncture. How do you take into account all of this background right. information as well? Because you're not thinking through a TCM lens necessarily, or are you using a TCM lens and an orthopedic? So how does this work in your brain? Sure,
1: sure. Now that's exa- that's a great question. That's exactly why I pulled this particular case study out of my my some sort of extensive file, is because I think yeah. it has a lot. To, it has a lot to teach here. I mean, every case study is unique, and you can't necessarily generalize, but. Um, but this is one of those cases that this is not like the 19 year old skateboarder who just sprained their ankle last week. This is like, okay, am I going to be able to get anywhere with just an orthopedic approach because there's so much going on in the background here that's going to complicate and inhibit and, you know, blunt treatment effects and so on. And, and, is this going to be one of those cases where really well, there needs to be several practitioners working here, or somebody who has a broader skill set than I do? Of and I, you know, sure, I went through TCM school. I know I know the patterns. I don't see them as often as some practitioners do, and I don't use them as much. But they're there in my background. And so I'm like, okay, so we got some kidney deficiencies, some lung qi deficiencies, some spleen qi deficiencies, some liver qi stagnation, etc. Um, and so to answer your question. Um, Tell you what, let me go, let me walk through physical exam, and then I'll answer your question about treatment methodology. Absolutely, um, Absolutely. So my physical exam, uh, I'm going to start with a you know my orthopedic approach, um, and so I examine her neck and I examine her right shoulder, and I'm surprised by how little there is on, to find in the way of physical exam. And I'll tell you the standout findings were that. When she would extend her neck, bend it backwards, and rotate it to either side, she would provoke some pain uh, on the side that she rotated to. So she tilts backwards, rotates to the right, she gets right neck pain, to the left, she gets left neck pain. Neck, so left that's, neck pain. that's
0: facet, typically, Exactly. Right? So I'm
1: thinking, yeah. oh, okay, well, she's got some facet arthropathy, we call it, just a general term for facet joint problems. Um, but that's it. That's the only thing I find in her cervical spine. You know, nothing palpable, nothing visible. You know, the other planes of motion are non-provocative. She doesn't have any numbness or tingling going down in arms. There's no indication that myotomes or dermatomes are being affected. So I'm like, oh, well, that's kind of garden variety. That's like, see that every day of the week, you know, every, you know multiple times yeah. a day sometimes. Um, and then her shoulder... <laughs> She did have a fairly significant limitation in her range of motion. She could get it to about one hundred and forty-five degrees, uh, about a, about one hundred and thirty-five. After that, it was really painful, and, and around one hundred and fifty, she was just like that's in, it. I can't go in abduction. Higher. In abduction. In abduction. Right. Abduction. A, a, yeah. abduction the, the most clinically significant and useful plane. Um, right. And um, but all the other planes were pretty unremarkable. You know, nothing. You know, no big pain provocation. No no limitations. Um, and then I take her arm, I do passive range of motion where I'm substituting my muscles and tendons for hers and I can get it all the way up without any pain or problems. So I go, okay, well, we're not dealing with frozen shoulder here. If this were frozen shoulder, neither of us would be able to get it past, you know, somewhere between 135 and 150 degrees. And it would get very painful towards the end range. If I tried to push it any further, she'd go, ah, that's it, stop. You know, but instead I can get her, I can get her arm all the way up overhead. So I'm thinking, okay, myofascial, you know, maybe some rotator cuff impingement and inflammation and, you know, tendinitis or tendinosis, um, but, but not frozen shoulder. And, and I'm thinking also not osteoarthrosis either, which is pretty uncommon in the shoulder, okay? Um, and then I manually test all the muscles in her shoulder girdle, and they all test fine, except for there's a little bit of pain-inhibited weakness in her external rotators, which, again, you test anyone over 45, you're probably going to find that, you know, one side or the other.
0: And 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 yet a surgeon was one was prescribing a total replacement in light of all of these findings. So, and then you said that there was an MRI too. So, were there any? Did it show uh, uh, any tears or anything?
1: So here's here's that's exactly thanks for that question because that's exactly where I'm going to go next. So I'm like wow, total shoulder replacement. Let's look at the MRI and see what's going on here. So we've got two MRIs here. One is a a cervical spine MRI that had been taken about uh, six months before I saw her. Um, and it said she had a, an antero- antero-listhesis, uh of uh, degenerative fracture at C4, C5. With a, it was a three millimeter uh, or a moderate grade anterolesthesis. We can look at a slide in a moment if, if, uh, uh, to see exactly what that looks like. But basically, the, her C4 was shifting forward on her C5 due to degenerative fracture. So that's not a very good prognosis for anything to deal with the, with the neck. You know, you've got major instability there. I mean, it was not a severe anterior ascesis, but it was a moderate. The mild ones can be asymptomatic, but usually the moderate ones are symptomatic. And it limits what you can do. You can't mobilize or manipulate the shoulder because you could tear the spinal cord.
0: So explain that a little bit uh, more. So, so one, one vertebra slides forward and sure. creates a fracture, can you explain we, that a little bit? Should we
1: look at a slide here? Because I think that might be really helpful. Just get a little um, visual.
0: Pull the slide up. And then for here. our people who are only audio only, we'll do our best to okay. give a verbal description.
1: Okay. So here, here is a slide that that um, that shows uh, spondylolisthesis. This This one is of the lumbar spine, but it's the same mechanics in all levels of the spine. So what we see here, she had about uh, probably a, somewhere between a grade 2 and a grade 3 slippage here, where C4 was slipping forward spontaneously above C5 because of a fracture in the pars interarticularis, the part of the bony arch, the neural arch that encompasses the spinal cord, uh, was fractured. This can happen traumatically, uh, and it can happen degeneratively, and it can also be congenital. And the the radiology report did not weigh in on whether this was congenital or an old trauma or degenerative. Uh, could have been any. But you consider that she has osteopenia. Of course, this is going to be more common in somebody who has osteopenia or osteoporosis than in the general population. So the problem with uh, that is that basically the spine above that point, you've got the 20-pound bowling ball of the head wobbling around above C4 on top of an unstable segment of the spine. So what's going to compensate for that is all this muscular splinting um, uh, to try to keep the spine in neutral, to try to keep it stable. And those muscles are not designed to do that, and they're going to wear out. They're going to develop trigger points and inflammation and and cause and send pain signals. And the, the, the nerve roots exiting from the spinal cord and the spinal cord itself are more at risk of being impinged upon by bony structures that are shifting around and unstable. Uh, and a severe... And this is... Yeah, go ahead. S-
0: s- sorry. Um, this is something that sometimes you'll see, you'll see like mm, manual therapy and PT or massage therapy exacerbates this yes. kind of situation exactly. in my experience because... Yep. As a massage therapist, massage therapists aren't trained to see and know what's going on underlying. Right. They just see really taut, stiff muscles. Um, but in my experience, I had I always knew to be careful, especially with older people yes. uh, who were having severe pain. That yeah. if you release all of those muscles, and that also I'm saying this for new practitioners too. If somebody's coming in and they're bracing an issue, like they have just a wall of Of really taut muscles surrounding something, do not go in and release all of that all at once. Because especially if you don't have this type of exam, because you just create more instability. Right? You're
1: absolutely right. You're absolutely right. In fact, you could create a very serious problem. You know, somebody with a high grade spondylolisthesis. Now, usually, somebody who has this severe spondylolisthesis that's already been identified by their physicians and they know. Hopefully, they know to tell a massage therapist don't don't mess with my neck. If you were to, you know, try some kind of mobilization technique or really dig around with your elbow or your thumbs and fingers really hard, you could worsen the fracture. You could tear the spinal cord and the nerve roots. You know, you could cause a lot of damage here. Um, yeah. And here's the thing. This does not necessarily have any visible or palpable anything on the surface to tell you. So this next slide here, I'm showing you a case where you could, if you're, you know, you've got subtle powers of observation you know what you're looking for, you'll see these very slight what are called step-off deformities, where the curvature is not uniform in somebody's neck. There's a little, like, a, a little step there, a staircase. And those, that that's, you know, on somebody who does not have much muscle or fat or you know, has a relatively thin skin back there, um, whose hair is shaved and, and who, you, you know, you palpate and you look at and you know what you're looking for, you might pick that up on physical exam. But somebody who's got a thick, we're looking... beefy neck. Sorry, go ahead.
0: Yeah. We're looking at the spinous processes in this slide right. too, right? So yeah, when you're exactly. looking right. at somebody and then you're looking at the step off that you're talking about, you're looking, and you can even palpate the spinous process too and, and feel this? That's right. Or no? You,
1: well, yes. it depends. Right. It depends on, it's like some people have kind of, you know, back of the neck, thick skin that's been exposed yeah. to a lot of sun. It's thick and rough, and maybe they're, they, they have a thick, fatty neck and a lot of taut musculature there that's splinting an underlying fracture. You may not be able to feel this. I mean, so I... You know, I I routinely kind of keep an eye out for this in my neck patients. I did not see any signs on the surface that this patient had a a moderate grade spondylolysis. Nothing to see, nothing to palpate. It was essentially silent, Um, Mm. and you know sometimes they're even asymptomatic. You know, but um, but you know, I she had already had this MRI, so I look at the MRI and I go, oh, she's got a moderate grade spondylolysis at C four C five. So. You know, gua sha is out of the question. You know, vertebra- vertebral manipulation or mobilization is out of the question. Yeah, suction cupping, okay. You know, gentle, light, myofascial release massage, probably okay. But it's not going to help.
0: It's not going to change the structure is what you're saying. It's not going to
1: change the underlying structure, exactly. I mean, they it may get
0: temporary pain, pain relief, but, they're, but it's going to come back.
1: You got yeah. it. It's okay. going to come back, and it may come back it may worse be if I'm too aggressive.
0: That's what I was going to say. Maybe even rebounding pain, right? Like, maybe yeah. even worse. Yes. Exactly.
1: Okay. So here's her shoulder MRI. I'll just read this off. Um, severe right glenohumeral joint, chondromalacia, uh, and near-circumferential degenerative labral tear. It means basically the labrum, the, almost the complete circumference of the labrum that's like this connective tissue, kind of like a rubber gasket that's supposed to hold the head of the humerus in the very shallow Glenoid labrum is almost completely degenerated Um, severe supraspinatus tendinosis with moderate grade 60% partial thickness articular surface tear distally in other words the supraspinatus tendon is 60% torn through moderate to severe osteoarthrosis of the AC joint with with inferior osteophytes and crisp wreaths for AC impingement Uh, mild to moderate tendinosis of intraspinatus, moderate subscapularis tendinosis um, with low grade, you know, inter, uh, a tear in the in this in the subscapularis tendon, moderate tendinosis and medial subluxation of the biceps brachii long head tendon, and then other, and there was a host of other lesser degenerative changes. So this is pretty much it's like okay, the, I can see now, I understand why the orthopedist probably didn't do physical exam because that's modern medicine. They just order an MRI, look at the MRI, and say okay, nothing we can do other than replace your shoulder joint. So and so,
0: it, so it's kind of fascinating that you were able to get this amount of range of motion, just all of these things going on for her to even be able to AB duck that far. You're right. Without you're right. extreme pain.
1: Exactly. So yeah. that's one of the takeaways here is that the MRI, uh, both the cervical spine and the MRI paint a much bleaker picture than her physical exam. If she had not had those MRIs and walked in and I did my physical exam, I'd say, oh, she's another one of several thousand patients that I've seen in their late 50s who's got a little bit of rotator cuff tendinosis mm-hmm. and, uh, and a little facet joint arthropathy in the neck. No big deal. Half a dozen visits, she'll be fine. She'll be on her way. Yeah. Now, I'm not knocking doing the MRI. The MRI saved me from perhaps worsening a fracture in her spine by doing any aggressive mobilization. But the downside of the MRI is that the the physician reads that to the patient and says, well, there's really no cure other than replacing your shoulder uh, and doing surgery on your neck. And the patient freaks out and goes further into depression and and, uh, and, and all their symptoms get worse.
0: Exactly. They identify. Yeah.
1: So let's go on to what I did treatment-wise with here. So, you know, again, this is all in this background of multiple chronic illnesses uh, and TCM patterns. That, so part of my methodology in working with complex patients like this is I would like to get, as best I can, a clear signal uh, out of my treatment, a clear response that tells me what's working and what's not. And with a new patient that I've never worked with before, I also prefer not to go in, Locally and do a lot of kind of aggressive, strong needling and digging around, uh, unless they really ask for it and they've had that from other acupuncturists. But I first of all want to just simply assess their their needle sensitivity, uh, how they respond to acupuncture. I want to give them some prompt pain relief and kind of establish a therapeutic rapport and do something that seems like it's within the spectrum of what they probably have had from prior acupuncture. Yeah. So my first my first visit with a patient that I've never seen before for acupuncture. My preference is to, to go slow and gentle, most of us to do that, and to not do a lot of local, aggressive, strong orthopedic you know, needling, um, not because it's going to be harmful for them, but just simply because if they've been conditioned to think that acupuncture is you lie quietly on the table for 45 minutes after somebody's put a handful of needles in your hands and feet, they, they may be alarmed and not ready for a strong sensation of needling into a cervical facet joint or deep into their shoulder joint. So I want to to provide prompt pain relief is one goal. I want to assess their sensitivity to needling. I want to establish a therapeutic rapport. And I also want to find out for myself what happens if I just treat the constitutional factors, because experience tells me, regardless of the MRI, regardless of the physical exam, regardless of what the orthopedic surgeon said, sometimes you treat their psychosocial, emotional, constitutional patterns, and all their symptoms clear up. Sometimes they don't. And I want to find out which. And so right. part of my methodology is okay, I'm gonna start with this constitutional approach. And so I just, you know, did some ear needles. Nothing very exciting in this point prescription. I look at it and I can't even remember exactly why I chose these points, but it was like bilateral kidney six, lung five, gallbladder thirty-nine and forty-one, liver three, spleen eight, a few ear needles. And I have her move her neck around a little bit, and it's like, oh well, her neck pain goes away. Great, okay. Her right shoulder; she suddenly got full range of motion. Great, okay. She still has shoulder pain; it's only reduced by about twenty-five percent, but she's got her range of motion back. Um, uh, and by the end of the you know the end of forty-five minutes or so with those needles in place, she's got improved neck range of motion, full shoulder range of motion, and a marked reduction in pain. So you might be thinking, Hallelujah! You know, well, <laughs> yes and no, because again, experience tells me that 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 first visit is not you know, you know, there's a lot of psychosocial factors. Somebody's got a lot of pent-up hopes and expectations. They may get a hallelujah response because their, their whole nervous system is wired and primed to get a great response and you never are able to replicate it ever again. It's a first-visit anomaly um, and they get depressed and drop out of treatment. So I'm always like, okay, well, we'll see how you're doing. I'll, let's reschedule for a week from now. So she comes back for a week and says, oh, the well, first couple of days are great, um, but then everything came back. And that's exactly essentially what I expected, because I didn't do anything really to address structure. Uh, I just you know, suppressed, temporary suppression of pain signaling. Um, so I do my, my physical, I repeat my physical exam. It's like a slight improvement in her shoulder range of motion, her neck range of motion. So there was some lasting effect. It just wasn't very dramatic. So I'm like, okay, let's try some local treatment. So I do some gua sha around her shoulder girdle not on her neck, but on her shoulder girdle. And then I position her uh, to be able to treat her right side of her neck. Uh, I, I continued doing some distal acupuncture. I didn't stop doing it, but now we're going to add getting into the subacromial space with some longer, thicker needles, getting I call what I call upper large intestine 15 and triple warmer 14, or needling high up and sliding the needles under the, the acromion uh, to get that rotator cuff that's impinging. I do some trigger point needling in her upper trapezius avoiding perpendicular pneumothorax mm-hmm. technique but um but reducing trigger points in her upper trapezius um i needle into her facet joints which is a technique that i teach at the c- the at the joints where the mri showed that there was above and below the the um, to try to restabilize the the, the cervical spine and if, if we want we can look at the needle angle on that and kind of see but um but this time, she gets a, a stronger response in terms of her her range of motion. There, there's more lasting improvement in the range of motion. But her pain is not really down that much yet. She gets temporary relief, but then it comes back. But um, there was enough of an improvement in her range of motion that I'm like, okay, let's keep on to this. And now let's add some electrical stimulation to it as well. That has a stronger effect on suppressing pain signals and more lasting effect. And so we go through about a total of... Um, five visits and at the end of five visits she's like yeah my right shoulder is doing really good my neck instead of uh she's saying instead of um pain it just feels tight at the end range which is a verbally it seems like semantic but that's actually a big shift uh, pain is a subjective emotional response to perceived tissue damage that's the actual definition of pain uh doesn't mean there that actually again. is anything It's a response to perceived or actual tissue damage, but there need not be any tissue damage for patients to experience pain. This is the International Society of Pain's definition of what pain is. It's it's an emotional stress response to actual or perceived tissue damage. So when somebody stops talking about pain and just says it feels tight or feels tense, they're no longer responding emotionally to to their, they're just saying, oh, I move it and it feels a little tight, but it doesn't stir up emotions for me. I'm not in distress about it. I just recognize it's a little bit tight. Got it. Uh, and she says quite significantly, I realize now that my neck pain is is an indicator, these are exact words, Has it's become an indicator for my chronic fatigue syndrome and myalgic encephalomyelitis, as well as stress and anxiety. So she's starting to realize that that, uh, that, you know, if she overdoes it physically, mentally, emotionally, her neck is going to flare. And if she doesn't, it's not that bad. It just feels a little tight at the end range as any 59 year olds would, right? It's not a 19 year old <laughs> neck anymore. It's, you know, it's 40 years later. Um, but, and then, okay, well, let's take a look at your shoulder. She's got more range on her right side than she does on her left side. She's got full pain-free range of motion back. There are no strength deficits. So I'm like, there's nothing left here on physical exam. You take repeat MRIs, they look exactly the same. I guarantee it. You know, we didn't order them. There's no need to. There's no, none of those major structural pathologies that show up in the MRI are going to change from what I've done. But five, five visits once a week later, she's got full shoulder range of motion. She's got full strength in her shoulder girdle. She's got a little bit of tension at the end range of, and slight limitations in her neck range of motion. But functionally, she's back to normal. You know, I'm not touting this as like, oh, you know, hallelujah, I'm some gifted acupuncturist. Here's my takeaways. Not to let the MRI throw you off track. Not to base all your treatment, your prognosis, your communication with the patient. You're just basically replicating what the orthopedic surgeon said. Speak as an acupuncturist. Go off your own physical exam. You could, it could be pulse and tongue if you don't have orthopedic skills. But go off of what your eyes, your ears, your hands, your fingertips, your, your nose tells you. Uh, And I'm not saying ignore the MRI, but don't let it dictate your prognosis and your treatment.
0: See, uh, that's interesting because I would have taken that, I would have taken the MRI and then specifically done a bit of a Callison approach with motor with motor points and um, specific muscle, and I might have even gone in and tried to target where the tear is, where those tissues attach, and. Like I find those that super helpful to have those things, but just like yes. you said, you did all of the muscle tests and you got locks on them, you got strength and and so yes. that's just blows my mind, and I love it so much, right? You The Western medicine has all of these, and this is why we love Western medicine or appreciate it or have have um, or I do, like have have some reverence for it. like they have great diagnostics, yes. you know, they have great tests. But just like you're saying, they don't always match up to the presentation and right. or the treatment and or the prognosis, yes. right?
1: Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So that's, that's, that's the big takeaway here. I'm not saying ignore the MRI. And, and I did what you said too. I, I was like, okay, well, the MRI is helpful because it tells me there is a yeah. supraspinatus tear. It tells me there is an antarolacesis. So I am going to target that stuff. Um, but in terms of my, my, my own mental emotional state, my, my communication with the patient, instead of gloom and doom, like, oh my God, look at this MRI. And yeah, the surgeon already told you you're going to need total shoulder replacement. I don't know if I can help you other, other than temporary pain relief. Um, it's to go, okay, well, there's the MRI. Thanks. That's helpful in terms of gives me a few ideas, a few clues as to where to needle and, um, and not to do vertebral manipulations in the cervical spine, and then beyond that, I'm going to set it aside and just go off my physical exam and the patient's response to treatment. And my physical exam just tells me, yeah, I've just got to try to restore their neck range of motion and their shoulder range of motion, get a little bit of strength back in their external rotators, and they're good. Um, so um so, Anthony, so, do you
0: do you mind touching on that briefly? Do you when you do when you have a case present to you like this? Um how in-depth do you go on all of the, the physical examinations? How many tests do you do? I mean, obviously, you're trying to rule out when you take a look at that neck and you figure it out that she's got facet issues mm-hmm. and then you're going to you're going to rule out a space occupying lesion of course right. and and of course the mri and all of that already tells you these things too right. but you still you still do your own diagnostics absolutely you do not absolutely. just you do not just <clears throat> read the, the other doctor's records
1: that's right you um, got it
0: because they can present differently in your office as that's well. that's right
1: right i mean she'd seen the orthopedist you know about i think it was about a year before she saw me and things could have changed right And and probably not for the better without outside intervention. But, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Um, Right, I I, I take other practitioners' impressions into consideration, but I don't adopt them automatically and say that that's what's going on. Right, they're humans, they make mistakes, they're in a hurry, or they just have a different diagnostic paradigm, and they look at things differently and they interpret things differently. So an orthopedic surgeon is basically going to look at what can I cut, what can I take out, what can I rebuild structurally, what can I inject? Not, you know... What's the patient's psychosocial functioning? What, uh, what, what what might we be able to do con- with conservative treatment? Um, right. So,
0: just, just just a real quick. Yeah. Um. You said that you don't you don't um use a pain scale. So, because we're potentially regulated by you know, well, you work in the courts, you know, like right. you have to use some, some measure. So what are you using in lieu of a pain scale? Are you using ADLs? Are you using, sorry guys, activities of daily living? Right. What are you using for your scale?
1: No, that's a very good question. Um, and I, um, I do use the pain scale in certain scenarios where it's kind of, uh, for example, reporting to managed care insurance plans, HMO plans or workers' compensation or motor vehicle accident you know, where that's kind of an expected metric, uh, and if I, don't, if I don't include that, there's like, well, you know, what have you done? Well, well, here's the other metrics that are much more clinically significant. The, the, in, on the subjective side is exactly what you said, is activities of daily living. So there's a number of research-validated tools that, that have been developed for both researchers and clinicians to assess a patient's kind of functioning in daily life, That are specific to body regions there's something called the neck disability index and the shoulder pain and disability index and these are short surveys they're typically Mm -hmm. 10 question surveys that you can have a patient fill out in your office on a regular basis i certainly often use those even with cash paying patients right on the first visit because they tell me a lot more than the pain scale right the pain scale is i call it the pain roller coaster right you know, oh, you took my pain from an eight down to a three. Hallelujah. And they go home and they have a fight with their spouse and their kids in trouble in school and their dog needs veterinary care and they had a fender bender in the parking lot. And it's just like one of those days. It's just like the day from hell. And then their pain is at a 12, right? And then they take a vacation and they're on the beach and they're sipping Mai Tais and they just went snorkeling and their pain's at a one, right? It's a, it's a pain roller coaster. It's almost meaningless, uh, and I'm not just making it that is. up. I was
0: just reading. Yeah, I was just reading about this actually too. And you're right. Like uh, people's people's perception, they adjust it accordingly as time progresses. Exactly. So at one point, a three may be a three, but then on another day, that three would be a, a six. You're right. So it's really anyway. So Thank yes, you. that's why I was asking. I was curious. Thank yeah, you. Um, right.
1: So you're so utilizing
0: I, I, outcome assessment tools. I'm
1: using right exactly. I'm using functional s- surveys on the subjective side. And then even more important, objectively, I'm taking joint range of motion measurements with a goniometer or a pair of inclinometers. I'm grading their muscle strength using a standardized grading scale. I'm, I'm measuring their sensory function using a two-point discriminator or just an alcohol cotton ball swab technique. There's a number of these sort of t- objective tools we can use. To, to measure somebody's physical functioning. And that's what I report back to, to referring physicians, to managed care insurance, et cetera. And I show the patients, and I can't emphasize how important that is. You know, when the patient sees that their shoulder range of motion has gone from 135 to 185, uh, and that their strength has gone from a grade 4 to a grade 5. or they can, These are things they can see and feel in their own bodies that will keep even a patient like this who has moderate to severe depression and multiple chronic illnesses coming back for more treatment because even if they are still in pain, they start to see some numbers going in the right direction. and They go, oh, maybe this is working. Um, yeah. Go ahead and yeah. take us home. Yeah. Okay. okay. So, 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 so much for my relationship with Western medicine uh, here. Here's the, here's the takeaway for me with, with Eastern medicine is that the systemic constitutional approach didn't really produce much or, other than short-term pain relief. Now, some of you might justifiably say, well, you only did it once. What if you have done it a dozen times? Well, yeah. Maybe if I'd done it a dozen times, it might have gotten to where I got with an additional four visits of local acupuncture or not. I don't know. Probably not is my guess because there was so much structurally wrong with this patient that just treating the constitutional patterns and the background factor probably would have had the same result as her prior acupuncture experience of, you know, quote unquote, calming her system without actually improving her shoulder function and her neck function or their, or their pain. Okay. So, Uh, um, To put it a different way, I was able to get full range of motion and strength back in her right shoulder and near full range in her her neck and a marked reduction in pain in her neck without treating any of her constitutional or systemic factors. No constitutional herb formulas. Um, I mean, yes, I continued to use some distant needles, but from the second visit on, even the distant needles were not targeted towards constitutional rebalancing. They were very specifically targeting um, through the method that I happen to use is Richard Tan's balance method, but you could use Master Dong, or you could use, you know, some other ones. But there are certain methods of distant needling that target local pain without treating TCM patterns. And so from the, you know, second, third, and fourth, and fifth, or second, third, and fourth visits, I was using just a combination of local acupuncture and distant acupuncture, both targeting local problems in the neck and shoulder without attempting to shift any constitutional patterns or treat or underlying you know, depression that she'd had since high school or congenital kidney dysfunction or anything like that. And she still got better. Some of you might say, well, yeah, but you left her chronic fatigue untouched. You're right, I did. And what I did at that point, I referred her out to another acupuncturist. I said, okay, I've done what I can for you with orthopedics. If your problems come back, come see me. But your shoulder function's good, your neck function's good, your pain's way down. I'm not the one to see to treat chronic fatigue and chronic depression and sleep apnea and hypothyroidism and, kidney, you know, 10% functioning of your right kidney, et cetera. But I know somebody who is, right? So I referred you to uh, somebody who's really more of an herbalist uh, who that's right up their alley, deep psychosocial and internal medicine problems, something like so. What I want to offer up as hope to those of you that are beginning practitioners that are struggling with like, oh, my God, somewhere I, I need to treat everything all at once. Holistic medicine means I need to treat root and branch, cradle to grave, inside and out, top to bottom, left to right, back front, the entire human body in this person, their entire health history at every single visit or nothing will work. It's kind of all or nothing, and it's not so. It really is not so. Yeah, yes, everything is interconnected, but but just as with the internet or with viruses, you know, coronavirus and stuff, we need to. Ha- our bodies have filters and boundaries. Everything is connected through a system of filtration and through boundaries. And it's when those filters and boundaries start to break down that we really have big problems. So I can treat her orthopedic and neurologic problems without treating her internal medicine problems and still get good results. And then I refer to somebody else to treat the rest of the picture.
0: And I love that because, um, well, first of all, new practitioners do think that they need to treat everything and they're also hungry and need to make money so they're more inclined to continue to work outside of maybe their interest so especially in the beginning because we yeah. don't necessarily have a specialization in the beginning right. so and then the the third part that I really like about that is that um I never expected to see this, and this is a, a little bit personal, but like I never expected to see this as a massage therapist. I had such a great group of cross referral bases, and if I was busy, I would say, "Hey, go see Susie. She's amazing. She's very mm-hmm. similar in style, and you'll really appreciate her massage." And we did that, and it was no problem. There was no fear of losing money or patients, yes. or and it is that I'm I our acupuncture culture is really really in my experience, it's getting a little better since I've moved because I was in a different area and it's, it's Uh different here, which is nice. But, um, just this really like, um, no, that patient's mine. No, I've been in the field for 20 years. I deserve this three month wait list kind of attitude.
1: Very proprietary. Um, Yeah.
0: Very, very, very. And I think that we all win and our patients win if we can get them treatment more quickly than a three-month wait absolutely,
1: list. Absolutely, absolutely. And, <laughs> and, and you know, and, and I'm a very narrow specialist. I mean, like 90% of what I treat is just orthopedics and neurology. And if I treat anything else, it's, it's, it's orthopedics and pain, I should say. If I treat anything else, it's more kind of incidental and, you know, as part of treating an orthopedic problem. Um, but... Um, Uh, I I never liked the proprietary approach to my patients. And I'll tell you, as somebody who serves as an expert witness in malpractice, that proprietary approach and the failure to refer out is a common theme in many of the cases that I've worked on that wind up in the court system or in in, uh, complaints to the acupuncture board. You are much better off knowing your limits, knowing when to hold it and when to fold it, and, and not being afraid to refer out. And if you do, I guarantee you, you will get patients back. You'll get the same patient back because they'll trust you because they recognize that you're humble and you know your limits and you'll get physicians who want to refer patients to you because they'll say, oh, this is a humble practitioner. He knows what he doesn't do and can't do and what his limits are and when to send them to me. And I'll, and so this is exactly the kind of patient that I want to send to him um, or to you. Um, And then you develop a reputation. It's like, he's the go-to guy for shoulder joint problems. And and he knows to refer out for digestive problems, right? So I have acupuncturists who refer their tough orthopedic cases to me, and I send them my tough internal medicine cases, and the patients benefit. In my last practice, I actually, about half of my, my patients were other acupuncturists. You can be a specialist and you're not betraying Chinese medicine. It's just like the way I look at it is, well. I'm a Jing Jin practitioner. I treat the Jing Jin and, and also the Jing Luo, the the, the neurovascular or myofascial problems. I don't dabble in Zong Fu and I don't dabble in eight extras and I don't dabble in, you know, other areas where I know that I'm not the one. Um, but, you know, you send me a patient with a problem with the Jing Jin. Now, here's the final takeaway, because I know we're running out of time here. Um, So this is kind of related. Part of what I did for this patient is I helped her to reach clarity that her residual neck pain was an indicator of stress and fatigue and myalgic encephalomyelitis and chronic fatigue syndrome. Rather than irreversible tissue generation, which is what she had come to believe from her consult with the orthopedist and the looking at the MRI and being told she needed a total shoulder replacement and maybe surgery for her neck and so on. And like she's like, oh. Okay, I get it. I don't have some irreversible. I mean, maybe who cares if it's irreversible or not if if my function is back to normal and my pain is way down, it doesn't matter what the MRI looks like. Maybe it's a little caution that I shouldn't go out there snowboarding and risk falling on my arm and twisting my neck around or something, but but basically I can set aside the MRI and go back to living my life. And when I'm and just manage my stress and seek help for the chronic fatigue syndrome and the the, the constitutional factors, so as a light bulb went off of the patient.
0: Yeah, there was a great beginning, middle, and an end. Right, like you yeah. gave her the next step. You we we completed this process and this portion of this because that's stressful as heck. Yeah, thinking you're going to have to have an entire shoulder replacement—that's yeah. crazy. Yeah, you know, and this chronic neck pain. Those are those are horrible things, and so to have a conclusion and then like, okay, now here's your next step. You go see, you go see this, this next one. Yes. So I think that's, that's really um, amazing and, and great. And um, thank you so much for sharing this. Uh, And I've I've really enjoyed the conversation. Obviously we're at an hour and a half long. (laughs) Is there, is there anything else you'd like to say to the new practitioners out there?
1: That's a, that's a great question. I'll I'll see if I can boil it down to something really succinct. I'd say, I I just kind of building off what i said, I I would say, know what you love and, and, and build your skills and your practice around that. What are you really interested in? You don't need to treat and be able to treat everything. Uh, If you're in a small town, a remote rural area, yes, you wind up being a country doctor, you know, and you wind up being a generalist and maybe that's the right place for you. And that's great. I'm not knocking it. But if you're in any kind of competitive environment, Uh, or you simply want to specialize for whatever reason, don't be afraid to specialize and don't be afraid, you know, have the courage to pursue your, your passion, what you're really interested in and know that the better you get at it, the better everything is going to flow for everyone and your patients will benefit. And then for those cases you'll, you'll know when to refer out and you'll know, you know, who, who is a good candidate for you to treat and how you can help them.
0: Thank you so much. That's, um, that's actually something I suggest from a business perspective now for yeah. practitioners starting out now simply, and this is something that's completely different, but based on internet algorithms and how your website mm-hmm. tracks and how everything works that way, it's more beneficial to specialize, not just from a clinical approach, but to a marketing approach as yeah. well. Yes. Because the algorithms are getting smarter and smarter. And so even with social media, if your social media stuff is, is um, orthopedic, that gets picked up in that very specific way and blown up more so. So the That's way right. that, that the internet is working now, it's also in your benefit, not just clinically. It
1: is, it is a good business decision as well. And I know that one of the main inhibitions for people is that they came into this field wanting to feel like they were going to be holistic and and they've been indoctrinated to think that Chinese medicine means you treat the entire body again at every visit, and it's just not so. If you look at how Chinese medicine is practiced in China, you have specialists there, just like we have in Western medicine in the West. You have your hospitals that are that have wings and departments and branches, and it's like well that's the tweena guy, that's who you go to for bone setting, or the uh, you know that's the that's the herbalist department. You go see those those herbalists for the internal medicine. It's it's in the West we've tried to compress it all down into a four or five year curriculum that makes us generalists but then once you're through that hoop then then i think that you you are not betraying chinese medicine and you are still here's how i think of it is like i am treating specifically in a holistic context i look at the whole context but then I attempt to accomplish something within that context. If I just have kind of a shotgun approach and just try to treat the holistic context, I often end up not accomplishing anything except, con- you know, confusion and, and uncertainty and disappointment for me and the patient. But if I look at the whole context and I treat in a focused way, I'll accomplish something and I'll know what I haven't accomplished and I'll know what else the patient needs.
0: Thank you so much for coming on today. I, this was so much fun.
1: Well, thank you. It was a pleasure. And um, And I look forward to our next opportunity.
0: That's it. That's the end of the show. Thanks for tuning in. I really appreciate you guys. And if you appreciate this podcast, it would be amazing if you could head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave a great review. And if you don't like what I'm doing, then that's okay. No worries. Just skip it.